Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is Andre from the Mental Health. I'm here with Ed Davey from the Mental Health Foundation. Uh, Ed, you were talking about mapping the risk of suicide and suicidal thoughts here at the Zero Suicide Alliance Conference. And you've just done a master's in public health, I which have. is brilliant. Yes, thank you. Um, and you cited Jon Snow and Florence Nightingale and Charles Booth as inspirations for your work. Yep. Um, so tell us a little bit, first of all, about that historical perspective on this. Yeah, so I think data is incredibly important in good health uh, services and public health, trying to prevent illness, understanding the causes and drivers of, of what's making people ill and, and dying prematurely. Um, but that can sometimes be very dry and difficult for people to understand, even clinicians and scientists. So data visualisation, turning the data into something visual that people can grasp very quickly has always been an important part of, of public health and communications. So, um, you know, famously, Dr. John Snow, who some people call the father of modern public health, in the mid-19th century, um, he created a map of Soho, but also Lambeth and Southwark, uh, that linked households that were marked with black dots that had been affected by cases of cholera, um, and he linked them to water sources from different water sources that, that proved kind of or demonstrated germ theory as it was developing and proved the link between uh, cholera infections and dirty water. And by visualising it on this map that people could really easily grasp, um, it really helped change policy, bring in kind of modern sanitation, give uh, modern local government uh, uh, the role in, in, in sorting out sanitation and massively, well, clean water has saved more human lives than any other intervention in the history of humankind. So pretty important. And it was data visualisation that helped do that. It also, two other examples from the 19th century, um, Florence Nightingale, uh, who used some very nice, innovative, colourful, uh, circular kind of graphs, I can't quite describe them, um, that, that showed mortality, deaths, of the army in the east, the British army in the Crimea. Um, and it actually demonstrated that relatively few soldiers actually died in battle or even from their immediate injuries. But actually what they were dying from were infections picked up in the hospitals, which were filthy. Um, and that demonstrated that there would need to be a huge change of practice in terms of clinical hygiene. And that, that again, has saved millions of lives probably. Uh, and lastly, Charles Booth, um, he mapped poverty in London, uh, different colours for different households, for different what we would now call you know levels of deprivation, um, and it demonstrated uh, you know patterns of deprivation, how that was linked to other poor outcomes, and that that had, that was very influential in Victorian London as well. So uh, the point I was trying to make was that uh, by visualising things in maps or graphs or other forms of of, of visual communication you, you can convince an audience policymakers and others to change practice because it's a bit it's often more graspable um, in terms of communicating information yeah everyone loves a map or oh, I love a map yeah, yeah totally <laughs> mental health foundation you and the team there are working with the zero suicide alliance and you're launching this thing in a few months time a couple of months time yeah. in the spring suicide risk maps for England so tell us about those so yeah, so based on that premise that we want to change practice and reduce the risk of suicide, we wanted to do it in a visual way um, and 
I would talk to Geraldine Strathee from Zero Suicide Alliance about whether this was possible. And we had done some similar sort of work with Thrive London, looking at mental health inequalities across the 32 London boroughs and, and sort of colour coding them according to the level of, of risk. Um, so I said, well, it doesn't sound too dissimilar for, from, from that. So we chose 11 different indicators that are publicly available um, that experts in the foundation um, on, on, on a criteria of, of them being openly available, actionable, uh, relevant um, and a couple of other criteria that, that we put that together so we've got 11 different criteria that fall into three different categories children and young people um, mental health and substance misuse and the third one is employment and income um, and then so we put all those 11 indicators under those three subcategories together uh, and we we mapped the risk uh, and compared the nine English regions to each other. So not probably not surprisingly to your listeners, um, the north of England had the highest relative risk according to those 11 indicators. The Midlands and the southwest had a kind of medium level of risk and London, the southeast and the east of England had the lowest level of risk. Um, and then what we did was we, we used the same methodology within the regions to compare upper tier local authorities to each other so, you know, for example, you could click on the northwest um, and see how Blackpool compares to Lancashire, uh, or you could click on London and see how Lambeth compares to Hackney, um, and so on and so forth. So you can see the, the relative risk between the nine English regions and then within the, each region, the relative risk of the local authorities within the region. And, um, you know, as you say, everyone loves a map. It's, it's, it's sometimes good to spark uh, a bit of local rivalry. You know, I, I have another role as Cabinet Lead for Health in Lambeth Council, so I always like to see how I'm doing against my neighbours in Southwark and Wandsworth and Croydon, for example. So if we can spark some healthy rivalry of people wanting to reduce the risk factors around suicide and suicidal thoughts, that's a good thing. Um, and this is kind of an easily graspable uh, indication of where people are. But we didn't want to do like a straight traffic light indicator because we didn't want anyone to be green. Nobody has a low risk, nobody has no risk, nobody has zero suicides, which is the objective. Um, so we, we're going to have them red, orange and yellow. Um, and as I say, the, the, the red will be uh, action required. No, sorry, immediate action required. The middle tier, orange, will be urgent action required. And the lowest tier will be um, action required. And sorry, the red one is immediate action required yes um, so everyone has action that they need to take on those 11 indicators and then what we want when the final web-based resource is ready we'll have those 11 indicators you will be able to click on for example substance misuse as a risk factor and it will take you to some actions you can take locally or to lobby for so say for substance misuse you could lobby your local council to have uh, a stricter alcohol licensing policy you could lobby your local council that has a public health function to commission better uh, substance misuse services and you could lobby local economic actors to do more things to reduce poverty which we know is the strongest predeterminant of people misusing substances and also um, general suicide risk and then there'll be uh, case studies where people have managed to do all of those things really well for example, Newcastle has its own minimum unit 
pricing for alcohol um, scheme similar to Scotland's where they've reduced alcohol use by 25% so it, it will have that as a case study so so it hopefully will make local people think uh, and local MPs and councillors and clinicians and council officers these are really useful and, and clear things that I can do to act to reduce the risks in all of those categories. Of course what always happens with this kind of thing is you, you have a, a target audience in mind when you develop it and then when you launch it it gets used by those people but it also gets used by all sorts of other people. Yeah. Have you thought while you've been developing it who's going to benefit most from this? Well you know this morning at the ZSA conference there was quite a lot of talk from clinicians about kind of individual risk factors and that is really important and it's really important to have very good services for people who have a heightened risk and who come into the purview of services what we're really interested in as well as that is is general populations so what can we do as communities um, as as local residents but also as local government and the NHS not just as a provider of services but as uh, an anchor institution if you like in its community the NHS is the fourth biggest employer in the world it has about 40% of all public money in the UK um, and I feel very strongly that there is a wider responsibility on the NHS to use that not just to treat people when they get sick but to make sure that they're employing people uh, fairly decently paid at, at least proper living wage rate so that they're reducing the risk of people getting ill feeling suicidal drinking too much whatever it is as well as providing services so we want we want all of those people, all of those actors, including you know, ordinary, if you like, in inverted commas, residents, patients, service users, um, to 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 use this information, to act on it, to, to take action themselves, and to lobby those who have some power uh, to take take wider action. But hopefully, you know, everybody can use it. It will be completely free, open access, and very happy to talk to anyone about about how to use it and and what circumstances. You started off by saying, I've got lived experience of mental illness. This is a bit of my story, as well as your master's in public health. That was really inspiring. Thank you for sharing. I know how difficult that can be. Um, I'm interested in the citizen perspective on this, you know, somebody with lived experience. Because in my view, it's those people that have been through it that can somehow be the biggest... Um, proponents of these sorts of things yeah. so how do you see people actually using this resource to take action you said you're talking about lobbying yeah. your MP or your local authority but are there other ways you think people can do that yeah absolutely I mean um, you know lived experience is really important I, always, I often say uh, and certainly that's the case in mental health foundation there are t- sort of two twin pillars to to meaningful public health work one is the scientific data what does the data tell us and the other bit is communities and community action and what what can people do with this information you can have all the data in the world and all the scientific evidence if people don't aren't able to access it or use it then it's it's useless similarly you can have lots of community action um, and some of it if it's not based on some kind of objective idea of 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 good if there is such a thing that then it can be you it can be misused and we can have very strong community movements that have bad 
bad outcomes for some people. Um, so for me, you know, good good practice is to try and combine the two, which is really tricky. Um, but in this case, I hope I hope people are able to use this data because it's very accessible and um, easy to understand. I hope um, and use it to 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 communicate with people in their communities, whether they have nominal power, like myself as a local councillor or um, doctors and clinicians within hospitals or just to organize themselves you know um, and that might be just you know sending emails or, or talking to people or organizing meetings um, and you know they say forget who said it now but knowledge is power and um, if we can empower our communities by giving them some some knowledge some extra knowledge then hopefully they can use it to some advantage but also we want it to be a two-way communication so we haven't quite worked out all the fine print of it, but on the web-based resource, we want people to be able to submit ideas to us or, or case studies of good practice where they are, because we don't pretend to have all the answers. There may be some wonderful scheme in Dorset that a community has designed to support local people where they are, um, and it would be great to hear from people so that we can share that and use the power we have uh, to, to share that more, more broadly. So yeah, I, I'm I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I suffered badly from depression and uh, suicidal thoughts, and ended up in an acute hospital. And I've been on a ten and a half year recovery journey. But I'm also conscious. I actually had a really good experience of of substance misuse services and acute hospital services, um, and I've been really fortunate in my recovery. But I'm a, I'm very conscious that I also had other advantages that other people don't have through no fault of their own. You know, I'm a white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied man with all of that privilege, and that has really helped me um, to recover in a way that I don't think is as equally available to everybody. So what I'm interested in is trying to give everybody the chance to live their best life as I've managed to be able to do, um, whatever their particular background or protected characteristics are, and, and that is a massive challenge, but we've got to make every effort to, to give people that chance. And maybe in a tiny way, sharing some data is, is part, of that, part of that mission. This is really great work. So these suicide risk interactive maps are launching in the spring on the Zero Suicide Alliance website. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for talking to us about it. My pleasure.